0: ID The Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design.
1: It's majestic and it's mind boggling. Hello, I'm Tom Gilson. And today on ID The Future, Hank Hanagraff interviews Eric Castle on Castle's book, Animal Algorithms. They're talking about animal navigation, including building maps and doing arithmetic of sorts, all of it apparently written in their genomes, raising the question, How did they ever acquire abilities like that?
0: I am so excited about the podcast today. Before I introduce my guest for today's podcast, I want to mention something that kept going through my head as I began reading his book, and it is the statement of King Solomon. The wisest man who ever lived said, go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares its food in the summer and gathers its provision in the harvest. So here you have King Solomon telling you to get off the couch, get outside, and observe ants. So what in the world can you learn from an ant? Well, we're going to find out today what you can learn from the ingenious, complex program behaviors of ants. My guest today is Eric Castle. He is an expert in navigation systems. He has had a longtime interest in animal navigation and has more than 40 years of experience in systems engineering, which is directly related to aircraft navigation and safety. Eric has served as an engineering consultant for NASA and the Federal Aviation Administration and has developed computer algorithms for safety systems. Now, algorithms is a very important word. We're going to be talking about algorithms because the title of his book is Animal Algorithms, Evolution and the Mysterious Origin of Ingenious Instincts. And Before I get to Eric, I was fascinated as I was reading through the endorsements for this book to run across a man by the name of Gunther Beckley, who does this stirring endorsement. I won't read the whole endorsement, but in essence what he says is that this book, the book we're going to be talking about today, is another welcome and highly recommended step toward an overdue paradigm change in modern biology. Now that's quite a mouthful. And particularly when you start to realize who Gunther Beckley is, he's a, a German paleo entomologist who specializes in the fossil history and systematics of insects. And he's worked as a curator in the Department of Paleontology at the State Museum of Natural History in Stuttgart, Germany. And the reason this endorsement is so stunning is in 2009, which was the 200th anniversary of Darwin's birth, Beckley curated a museum exhibit that featured not only Darwin's work, but also books by intelligent design theorists. And he cleverly featured a balance scale. On one side, you had Darwin's Origin of Species all by itself. On the other side, you had the intelligent design books written by a wide variety of authors. So you had all these books on one side, and then you had Darwin's Origin of Species on the other. And his point was that Darwin's Origin of Species outweighed everything else. But here you now have an ID skeptic who's endorsing this incredible book. So he was a former ID skeptic. He is now endorsing the work of Eric Castle. Eric, it is great to have you on the podcast today. I was so fascinated by your book because you're taking things that we ought to be observing and you're making these things observable in the sense that you're explaining things that we don't normally see.
2: Well, thanks, Hank, for having me on the program. Yes, that was one of the aspects that attracted me and encouraged me to write The book from that aspect was that many of the things that are discussed in the book are things that are easily observable today. They don't rely so much, for example, on the fossil record, things that may have happened millions of years in the past. These are behaviors that animals exhibit that, again, are very easily observable.
0: And you start with an ant. And If we observe an ant like Solomon told us to observe an ant, we see that they have phenomenal navigation skills, and yet they have a brain smaller than a sesame seed, and with this brain, they perform extraordinary mental feats. Give us some kind of a sense of what happens when you watch an ant, and you really observe what that ant is doing.
2: Well, there's actually two different aspects of ant behavior that are discussed in the book. One is the social behaviors that you hinted about a minute ago, and those are complex because the ants live in these highly complex social colonies and exhibit a lot of different behaviors, and so there's complexity in how those behaviors are controlled. The other aspect is some particular ants and their navigation abilities And what I describe in the book is how in particular this one ant that's called a desert ant lives in the as the name implies the deserts in Africa that have navigation systems that rival the systems that we use on commercial aircraft today. And they use a number of different sensors, as do our aircraft systems, and they employ complex algorithms to guide their navigation system. It really is amazing when you compare the two side by side.
0: You also talk about leafcutter ant colonies, and you say that's your favorite, one of the seven wonders of the animal world.
2: Yeah, the leafcutters are, again, it's another behavior that when you examine it closely, it's ants that are working together in unison to cut down leaves and transport them to their home nest. And it's a process that involves, again, the ants in the colony working together in unison. It's not just some solitary ant out there doing these behaviors. They somehow, and we don't understand how, actually, how they coordinate all that complex activity.
0: And you have ants that live in trees that are able to take growing leaves without taking them away from the tree at all. They're growing. They take those leaves and they're able to glue them together. And if the leaves are jagged, have jagged edges, they're able to trim them and then make a nest that is about the size of a soccer ball, something like that. I mean, that's an incredible thing if you see them doing this in a social behavior and then engineering something that is absolutely astounding.
2: Right, yeah. Again, it's a social behavior that involves activities amongst the ants in the colony working together, and the ants you're talking about are weaver ants, and the aspect that you touched on briefly to me is the most fascinating and challenging from a scientific point of view is how to explain how ants and other animals, other insects that I talk about, with such tiny brains are able to exhibit such complex behaviors it's well beyond anybody's ability to understand at this point in time how that is even possible
0: and yet there is an explanation that is given in the neo-darwinian mind it's an unguided purposeless process that leads us to these complex program
1: behaviors
2: well exactly i mean that is the reigning paradigm in biology that it's all due to, you know, just random mutations and natural selection, and that that process is capable of generating not just complex biological systems physically, but also complex biological behaviors. And that includes, again, these behaviors occurring in such tiny brains. Now, you can take that Darwinian paradigm and think, okay, that's Maybe that's somewhat plausible, but when you examine how these behaviors occur, to me there's several different aspects to this that are very mysterious. One, what is the origin of the information that even defines the behaviors in the first place? That's a major challenge for a Darwinian point of view. Second, how are those behaviors? and this information contained in the genome, that's something that is very mysterious, and we understand very little at this point about that. And then third, how are those behaviors and that information somehow encoded in these brains, and again, in such tiny brains with such efficiency? You must have an extremely efficient neural network that somehow takes that information and encodes that behavior into the brain.
0: Yeah, and it's not just ants. I mean, there's so many things we ought to be observing. Another one of the tiny animals that you talk about in your book is the honeybee. And they have an amazing mini brain as well. And through that small brain, they are able to do these complex behaviors that include navigation, which is astounding. And I think perhaps the most astounding thing that you point to is the waggle dance of the honeybee. The second most information-rich exchange in the animal world, second only to human language. I mean, that's astounding in and of itself.
2: Yeah, exactly. And that's an observation that scientists have made for quite a while going back to the the scientists that originally discovered that Carl von Frisch and what they're indicating is that the information that's contained in what is essentially a communication system where ants are able to communicate with each other defining navigation information you know where to search for food where to go look for another nest there's a significant amount of information contained in the waggle dance and they are able to communicate it. Again, this is something that's taking place between animals with extremely tiny brains, but it's all encoded into those brains somehow and transmitted again genetically from, you know, from one generation to the next. And again, you get back to the same question What is the origin of the information that defines all of that? And that is a major mystery.
0: I mean, this waggle dance gives you direction, gives you distance. It conveys where the food source is and the distance it takes to get to the food source. I mean, it's just absolutely astounding. And you also write about the Arctic turn. And I think this is particularly intoxicating when you stop to think about the fact that an arctic tern might travel as many as 30,000 miles, and over a lifetime, maybe a million miles. Talk about a frequent flyer. (laughs)
2: Exactly. Yeah, the tern and a number of other birds do these significantly long distance migrations, many of them going from one pole to the other on the Earth annually. And One of the challenges about such behaviors from an engineering and navigation point of view is how do they do these migrations so accurately? And we've learned a lot over the last couple of decades about the navigation abilities of a number of different animals, including many of the migrating birds. But we still don't really understand completely how that information is contained in the genome. For example, many of these migrations are inherited. So somehow they arose in the past. We don't know how. And that destination for their migration is contained, we believe. Again, that's really kind of conjecture at this point. But the assumption is it is contained in the genome and then transmitted to their offspring. And so in the case of birds, when they're hatched, they actually have that information, and they were able to migrate to a specific destination without learning anything, without any information being conveyed from the parents. They are just born knowing where to migrate to. It is just, it's just astonishing.
0: Did Darwin know anything about genetics?
2: Well, no, of course not. He was well before Mendel and the work that went on later on about genetics, so he really didn't know much of anything about how genetics worked.
0: Is that giving Darwin a bit of a pass? I mean, at least you can understand how he would have come up with a theory, or popularized a theory, I should say, and if he had known about genetics, perhaps he would have modified his view somewhat.
2: Well, I think that's certainly true, because he got a number of things wrong in terms of genetics specifically. For example, it wasn't just him, but... Other scientists of that era believed in the blending of characteristics where they thought that a particular characteristic would be transmitted in sexual reproduction from the two parents, that those characteristics would blend in some way in the offspring. Well, of course, following the work of Mendel, we learned that that's not the case. So he was really off on that aspect of genetics. Another aspect that I don't think, and biologists acknowledge that that's the case, that Darwin obviously was ignorant about that, but so were many other people at that time. Another interesting aspect related to genetics is so-called Lamarckian evolution. So that's a theory that so-called acquired the characteristics where an animal could acquire a particular characteristic during their lifetime and then transmit that to their offspring. And it had some support at the time of Darwin. In fact, even after Darwin, some people continued to believe in that. Darwin actually was a big advocate of that. In The Origin of Species, he actually writes about that and provides support for that point of view a number of different times, and in particular, in relation to animal behaviors. He thought... Lamarckism was actually a potential explanation for the way a number of animal behaviors might have developed over time and evolved. So, again, but, but that's an area that it's interesting to me as I did the research for this book to find that biologists have completely overlooked that aspect of Darwin's point of view, that he actually did become an advocate for Lamarckism. And, again, particularly in regard to um, behaviors. But, of course, that was pretty soundly discredited eventually also.
0: Yeah. Why did you focus on less advanced animals? I mean, what was the reason that that's your focus in this book?
2: Well, that's a great question, yeah. And the simple reason is because there's a big difference between behaviors that are instinctual or innate. In other words, a behavior that an animal might exhibit almost from the moment of birth versus behaviors that require some learning. So more advanced animals, i.e. mammals, for example, have brains that are large enough and are able to learn a significant number of things over time and learn behaviors. Whereas what I wanted to focus on was behaviors that are essentially programmed into the animal's behavioral repertoire almost from the moment of birth. And so by doing that, it removed any possible explanation of the role of learning for these behaviors, in that they have to be, and then. Pretty much I was trying to focus on behaviors that, again, are innate, and so therefore they must be pre-programmed in some way.
0: You've sort of done this already, but perhaps you can really zero in on this moniker. If you read your book... One of the things that you come away with is three words that are imprinted on the canvas of your consciousness, complex programmed behaviors. Unpack that a little more for those listening in, because I think this would be an incentive for people to read this book.
2: Yes, that's the term that I use throughout the book, complex programmed behavior. And the reason is, again, I wanted to focus on certain kinds of behaviors that had a characteristic that indicated... That there was some programming aspect to it that weren't just simple behaviors. So, for example, take the word complex, and I want to distinguish those from simple behaviors that are basically just reflexes. Or, in psychologist terms, they talk about Pavlovian type of behaviors where there's a stimulus and then a response. Again, those are, for the most part, those tend to be simple behaviors. I wanted to steer clear of that and talk about behaviors that were more complex than that programmed infers that there's an aspect of the behavior that is again it's innate and it means that it's involved not necessarily an algorithm per se and most of us tend to well, I'm an engineer so that's my background but I tend to typically think of an algorithm as a computer algorithm It's not just simply limited to a computer-type algorithm or a piece of software code, but it could be other things beyond that. A specific example might be, in the case of the social insects, they have a number of decision algorithms. In other words, they have a large repertoire of behaviors that they perform in the social colony, but the control of that is done through, apparently, a number of decision algorithms that exist in their brain. In other words, they make a decision based on some environmental condition, like they need food or they need to go search for a new nest or tend to the queen, et cetera. So there's a decision process involved there. And so that means there's some kind of an algorithm. We don't know what it is, but it's somehow helping that animal make a decision of, do I do behavior A, B, C, which one? So there's a choice involved. So that also meets the category of a complex algorithm. We
0: were talking earlier on about the Arctic turn, and I want to quote Darwin here, just as you do in the book, where Darwin says that a human being cannot on his first trial, let's say, make something like a canoe. But a beaver, on the other hand, can make a dam. A spider can make a wonderful spider web. And they can do it the first time. This is astonishing when you have an Arctic tern who can determine a navigation of that's based on the magnetic field of the Earth. I mean, when you think about that, that's a mind-blower. But that's pre-programmed. That's what you're talking about when you're talking about algorithms.
2: Yes, exactly. Again, these are algorithms that are all pre-programmed. Somehow they reside in, you know, neuroscientists would talk about this in terms of a neural network in the brain, which logically makes sense. At least as far as we know today, that's the most plausible explanation So, in other words, they are hardwired, these behaviors, from the moment that the animal is developed and is born. Not only is the, let's say, it is a neural network and the brain is hardwired, but there's a lot of aspects to that that are pre-programmed as well. In other words, in some cases, specifically in reference to navigation ability, there's actually mathematics involved. Uh, The animal is actually taking some piece of information, typically a sensor, like a magnetic sensor, for example, using that information and actually computing a navigation path. In other words, okay, I have some information, my sensor's telling me where true north is, for example, but I want to fly southwest. So there's a computation there that says, okay, I, I have a piece of sensor information, Now I have to compute where is my destination. So there's a number of different aspects of this that are well beyond our comprehension about how animals are doing all of that. Again, particularly in regards to these insects like uh, ants and bees, where they have such tiny brains.
0: And butterflies as well. One of the fascinating parts of your book is the explication of the monarch butterfly I've often been fascinated, and I've talked in various lectures about butterflies, what happens when a caterpillar goes through metamorphosis. You have this incredible transformation that takes place, where from the caterpillar, you now have a butterfly. The caterpillar has eyes that can distinguish between light and dark. The butterfly has a field of vision and color acuity that exceeds even that of a human being. The caterpillar doesn't have wings, the butterfly does. The caterpillar doesn't have a proboscis, the butterfly does. So you have this mysterious molecular mixture that's in the chrysalis, and out of that comes a butterfly. And it's absolutely astounding when you think about metamorphosis and how that has to be explained by the Darwinian evolutionary process. I mean, it seems impossible. It's one thing to explain the caterpillar and all of its complexities, but out of that you have metamorphosis in a butterfly.
2: Yes, and one of the mysteries about all that is the fact that essentially what you have is two entirely separate genomes. In other words, you have a genome that defines a caterpillar, and then you have a genome that defines the butterfly but they all reside within the genome of the animal. And somehow or another, there's a switch between which part of the genome is activated at some particular time. Yeah, the whole metamorphosis is a really big challenge for Darwinian evolution.
0: I love the fact that on the cover of your book, you have the loggerhead sea turtle. And I think this is really interesting to talk about the kind of ingenious... Built in compass that a loggerhead turtle has.
2: Right, and the loggerheads are one of the animals that there's some research that's indicating that they have a particular unique ability for navigation. And that is one of the big ways of distinguishing between different types of navigation is a navigation system where you're flying, or in the case of a turtle, you're swimming. In a certain direction, so in other words, going east, west, etc., toward some general sense of direction. However, in the case of the, the loggerhead and some lobsters that have this ability, there's an indication that they actually have a map sense. So in other words, typically when we think of a map, we think of a two-dimensional map, but it's based on latitude and longitude. So you're able to get a two-dimensional representation of space, and you can go from destination A to B based on the coordinates within that system. What's been found, and we didn't know until very recently, that some animals actually do have a capability that appears to be a form of a map sense like that. And the theory is and there is some, again, some research indicating it's actually based on different aspects of the Earth's magnetic field. So, in other words, typically when we think of the magnetic field of the Earth, we think of just a compass giving you north and south, you know, where the pole is located, for example. But the magnetic field actually has more information than that because it depends on both the vertical and horizontal direction of the field. So, as you move from one of the poles toward the equator, the vertical inclination changes. So, it moves as you traverse between the equator and the pole. And so, the theory is that these animals are actually able to use that information. And not only does it give you north-south information, but there's also some indication that, because the Earth's magnetic field actually does vary geographically, it has a there's a number of things that cause it to change slightly as you move, for example, over the ocean or near one of the continents There's a lot of geometric uh, anomalies, but the belief is that you can actually create a two dimensional map based on that information, and that's what animals like the loggerhead sea turtle and some others appear to be using as a form of navigation, which is, again, this is something a few years ago nobody thought was even theoretically possible, but now there's some research indicating, yeah, that in fact might be the case.
0: I want to really zero in on navigation in general, and then in specific the different kind of navigational capabilities that these animals have. So you make the statement in the book that long before human beings invented compasses, animals enjoyed ingenious built-in compasses along with an inborn capacity to read the compass. And you say they, in effect, perform these incredible mathematical computations. And in the process, you talk about Pigeons, and monarch butterflies, and dung beetles, and so forth. But these navigational processes are just spectacular, particularly when you get to the monarch butterfly. A butterfly that takes up to three generations, oftentimes to complete the journey. And then they're able to go to the exact tree. If they're flying from wherever they're flying from to Mexico, they're able to go to the exact tree that their ancestors went to. I mean, this in itself is an incredible story of animal navigation that is hard to believe. And perhaps you can elaborate on that. also pigeons, and I'm thinking about dung beetles as well, who can detect polarized light from the stars in the Milky Way galaxy. I mean, this in itself is mind-blowing to me.
2: Yeah, it really is amazing. And when I first started reading all of this, I was (laughs) just shocked that, these animals have these kinds of capabilities. Having myself worked on aircraft navigation systems and knowing how complex and sophisticated they are, and then when you read about what is going on within these animals and how they're navigating, it's just astonishing, like you said, how an animal can have such a sophisticated capability. One of the examples you mentioned is the sun compass But there's several, we talked already about the magnetic compass, which I think most people are familiar with. A number of animals use the sun as a source or position, which intuitively makes sense. But then they also, another aspect of the sun that a number of animals use is using the polarized light from the sun. In other words, the sun as a compass is great on a sunny day, course it's useless at night, but on a sunny day where you can see the sun, yeah, you can use it. On a cloudy day there's a problem with that. But there's a number of animals that are actually able, even on a cloudy day, they're able to detect the position of the sun and the reason they're able to do that is because they can detect the polarization of the sun because as the sun's rays are transmitted through the atmosphere they become polarized. When they're first transmitted from the sun, they're completely unpolarized. People familiar with polarized sunglasses where you use those to block out the intensity of the sun. Well, something somewhat similar goes on in some animals where they're able to detect the polarization of the sun, again, through the clouds without even seeing it directly. And then based on that polarization, they're actually able to infer the direction of the sun. It took me a long time studying this to to even understand how they actually, you know, in a theoretical terms, how it even works. But it's a complex process, and again, it also involves a number of aspects of mathematics. The other thing to make this even more complicated is that if you're using the sun in some way to infer a source for your navigation, you have to take into account the fact that the sun is moving throughout the day. It's not stationary, right? So animals, somehow they have encoded within their brains, they have an algorithm that they're able to actually compensate for the movement of the sun throughout the day. And there's been a number of experiments that have demonstrated this capability that if the sun is at a certain location at eight o'clock in the morning, an animal can detect that and use that to determine its navigation path. But then as the sun moves later, 11 o'clock in the morning, the animal knows that the sun has actually moved physically through the sky over those preceding three hours and actually compensate for that as it computes its navigation path. It's just amazing.
0: It is, and you think about the dung beetle. I mean, when I was reading about that in your book, I was astounded to read that they can detect polarized light from stars in the Milky Way and that use that as a basis for a compass. And as I'm reading this, I'm wondering how can intelligent people believe that these kinds of navigational processes could have evolved through a blind and purposeless evolutionary process?
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the big question here. When we think of systems like that that involve, and there's two aspects of it that stand out to me being an engineer, is one is just the engineering aspects of a number of these navigation systems. There's a, a lot of complex engineering that has gone into how these systems have developed and how they're built into the animals. That's one aspect. The other one is, again, basically the mathematical aspect of these are algorithms and again, and particularly in the case of navigation, they're mathematical algorithms where you're actually doing some computation and it involves in some cases just simple geometry, but that's When I say simple geometry, it's simple maybe to us, but (laughs) it's not so simple for an ant. Or if you talk about other cases where you brought up the Arctic turn, some of these birds that do these really long-distance migrations across the Earth, one of the things that they do is they're able to compute the shortest path. So an example I like to use for this is When you look at a flat map of the Earth, and if you're flying in an airplane from New York to Tokyo, they're roughly at the same latitude. So you would say, okay, the shortest path is just fly west. Well, when you look at a globe, it turns out that's not the shortest path, right? The shortest path that actually takes you from New York flying almost over the North Pole, To Tokyo, that is actually the shortest path, and those are what we call great circle routes. Well, it turns out some of these long-distance migrating birds actually fly those same kinds of paths. They're able to fly these great circle routes, giving them the shortest distance between the starting point and the end point. So when we do that, that involves sophisticated mathematics. It's specifically spherical geometry. Well, these birds aren't doing spherical geometry (laughs) like we can do, but there's some mechanism in their brains that's actually functioning the same way as if they're doing these sophisticated mathematical calculations, and we have no clue as to how that's possible.
0: The one thing that kept going through my head as I was reading through your book is the words of St. Paul, where he says God's eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen through what has been made. And so we are without excuse. And I think to some degree, even in an age of scientific enlightenment, we have become wretched flatlanders. We're stuck in the psycho-epistemological cocoons of our own obscurantism. We're looking at things, but not seeing the brilliance in those things. And you're taking an ant and a dung beetle of all things, and through these small creatures. You're demonstrating that something majestic is going on. We're, as it were, walking through the wardrobe into Narnia. We're seeing things that suddenly we didn't see before, and I think that's so beautiful. Oftentimes, I fear, and I'm certainly guilty of this myself, that we're not outside. We don't see the the majesty of God's creation.
2: Yeah, exactly. I agree with that. I think it just for myself as i've studied this element of biology over time, I became much more appreciative of how just the simplest things that you see every day or at least if you're observant you would see every day there's aspects of design that are obvious if we only take the time to actually you know study it in detail and that's one of the things that drew me to this subject. Was that a lot of this research actually has only been done in the last, I'll say, 50 years, in some cases less than that, where scientists have actually taken the time to try to understand what's going on with many of these animals and how they're exhibiting behaviors such as this. Previously, People believe that you know animals were just all simple robots, and they exhibited particularly these less developed animals such as insects, that these were robotic behaviours and they had limited repertoire of behaviours, and they didn't think it was that complex. Well, turns out that's not the case. You find more and more as they study these behaviours, they find just how complex these behaviours are. And the aspect of this that I think really stands out to me is that again that the fact that a lot of these behaviors are occurring in animals with really tiny brains and we think of humans we think okay we've got these giant brains and we have all this neural capacity we have you know tens of billions of neurons and it gives us a lot of flexibility and behaviors and be able to think. Well, that's one way of thinking about things. But when you look at these animals, they do not have these giant brains. They don't have the ability to really think in the sense that we are. And yet, somehow, these behaviors that are complex are programmed into these brains. And one of the aspects that demonstrates to me is, how it requires such a high degree of design intelligence to even conceive and implement such a design in brains that are so tiny.
0: (laughs) Design intelligence. I want to go back to the loggerhead sea turtles. Again, this is the image that you have on the cover of your book. And one of the points that ought to be elaborated on is the fact that the females... They don't become sexually mature until they're 20 to 30 years old. And then they're able to migrate back to the same beach where they were born, lay their eggs, and that somehow or other is imprinted as well in this brain. It's imprinted in their memory. So they can find something 20 or 30 years after they're actually born go back to that same place and lay their eggs. I mean, that's astonishing in and of itself.
2: Right. Yeah, that's amazing. When they're born and they're hatched, as soon as they hatch, they immediately travel to the ocean and then swim out to sea. Well, somehow in this process, immediately after they're born, they have some kind of information that's imprinted based on their navigation sensors it tells them where that beach is located. And then, like you say... This
0: is like 30 years after they're born. I mean, it's just astounding.
2: (laughs) Yeah, again, that's another element to this that we're really clueless as to how that even is possible.
0: One of the things that you bring up somewhat tangentially, and I don't know how much time you want to spend on this, but you mentioned global climate change. And it seems at least by reading what you've written about this, that that is less of an existential threat than during the most recent ice age.
2: Yeah, that's an aspect that caught my curiosity as I was thinking about how these animals are, um, and particularly the long-distance migrating birds and the monarch butterfly. So in the case of the monarch butterfly, for example, it migrates back and forth. Like you say, it actually takes several generations, but the population moves from, well, there's several different populations, but in the one that most people are familiar with is the one that migrates from eastern Canada to a part of Mexico. But during the last ice age, obviously, they were not residing in Canada because it was completely frozen and it was glacial. So I wondered about where were they migrating during the last ice age? I haven't come across any information about anybody that's done some research into this about where they may have resided during that period of time, but it gives you an indication that they actually did adapt during the last ice age. they survived somehow we don't know where, but they did survive, and then now they're we're past the last ice age, and then they migrate you know where they do between Canada and mexico but And there's a lot of other examples that are very similar to that, where animals obviously change their migration patterns, which brings up another question about all of this. And like we talked about earlier, many of these migration routes are actually, in some way, inherited. In other words, the offspring are born knowing where to migrate to. Well, if that's the case, how did they adapt over time with climate change? Because, again, the most recent significant example being the Ice Age. How are they able to change their migration patterns if it's actually somehow contained within their genome? We really don't know any of this about how that's even possible.
1: That was the first part of an interview with author Eric Castle, hosted by Hank Hanegraaff and used by permission from Hanegraaff and Hank Unplugged. They've been talking about Castle's book, Animal Algorithms, published November 2021. And of course, we encourage you to go to your favorite online bookseller even now and purchase your copy. Come back here for more and invite your friends as well. For ID of the Future, I'm Tom Gilson. Thank you for listening.
0: Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.